Hello and welcome to Volume 1, Issue 7 of the Cane and Rinse podcast. This week, Heavenly Sword and Enslaved Odyssey to the West. After half a decade of development, Ninja Theory's Heavenly Sword was released in 2007 to a hyped PlayStation 3 audience desperately short of exclusive games. Has it aged better than its moderate initial reception might have led us to expect? We'll find out. Three years later, the British developer returned with its multi-platform title Enslaved Odyssey to the West. How do you update one of the four great classic Chinese novels for a 2010 video gaming audience? Just add monsters. Please note, there may very well be spoilers. With me, Leon Cox, this week, I return with Tony Atkins, last week's host. Hello. And also coming back is Darren Foreman. Good evening, everyone. Now, two new Cane and Rinsers to introduce to you, uh, podcast veterans nonetheless, and uh, friends of the show. We have Paul Rooney. Hiya. Hiya. And, of course, Gary Blower. Hello. There is everybody. So... On the subject of Just Add Monsters, uh, the name of Ninja Theory before they became Ninja Theory, did anyone play their first game, Kung Fu Chaos, on the Xbox? Briefly. Anyone I, else? I know of it. I you know, know, of it. Played it, yeah. know of it, yeah. Okay, so the, you, you're the only person who has played uh, Ninja Theory's entire oeuvre, Darren. Yeah, sounds like it, although I didn't really have much experience with the first one. Okay, in, in, in one sentence, sum up. Kung Fu Chaos for us. Party game. Party game. Okay. Oh, so, so it, it, it was not Is that like Power Stone or is that like Roll Dice? Mm, not really like either of them. I mean, my, to be honest, my memories are quite fuzzy at the game. I didn't even know it was a Ninja Theory title beforehand, mainly because yeah. it wasn't. Well, it was same the team, same, different name. Same team, different name. Yeah, obviously a different ethos to the, uh, the Ninja Theory games, which are obviously very story and character. It based changed stuff. drastically between those titles, I would imagine. Well, yeah. I know for a fact. Okay, well, that's that uh, history completed. So on to Heavenly Sword. Now, uh, I didn't play it until uh, last year. Were there any of you who were non-360 owners who were PS3 only at the time back in 2007 and desperately waiting on this, as I know a lot of PS3 only owners were? I own, I, well, I own the 360, but I was desperately waiting for this title. Okay, uh, you'll do. Um, <laughs> it was. <laughs> you fit the criteria, go. Yeah, yeah. So it was one of the first um, exclusives after the very, very first sort of uh, launch title generation of PS3 software, if you will. And it looked pretty in previews. So there was quite a lot of hype for this. It looked very pretty in previews. Um, you got to remember this is a point when Sony are desperately trying to push their console against 360 and saying it's the powerhouse, this is the one you should buy, it's this much more graphical, you know, do so much more. Um, and it's taken a number of years to really for that to be you know, shown what it's capable of. But um, the early stuff that we saw was pretty impressive. The facial animation, for one, um, seemed to be a step above most stuff that we'd already seen, which just really been upscaled on the 360 at that point. Um, so yeah, it was it was one that Sony were really heavily promoting, uh, which when you actually think about it, it as a studio, um, Ninja Theory was a, a new startup studio really, because uh, obviously their first game wasn't particularly, as we've just discussed, wasn't particularly well known or loved. Um, so it seemed to be like, who was this developer and why is Sony throwing so much money at them? But and it, it seemed to be well, they, they know what they're doing with this architecture. So I was sold for one. It did start development on the PC, and then Sony got involved and had them bring it across as a PS3 exclusive, I believe. It was, yeah. They were, they were developing it for 
a good few years on the PC, and I think basically they were looking for a home for it, and they didn't want it to be on PC. Um, mm. The new kind of con, the new kind of next gen consoles, were out and yeah, I think Sony saw it and they were looking for a buyer. So yeah, I think reading that there was a seven year gap between um, Chaos, Kung Fu Chaos, Kung Fu Chaos, mm. and um, Heavenly Sword. So they were also been working on the the concept for a very very long time. Um, yeah, there was only there was only the extras, wasn't it, on the on the PS3 game, like in a developers kind of diary type thing. Paul, did you uh, did you rush out and buy this on day one? Uh, yeah, I did. I can remember playing the demo uh, quite a lot actually when that first hit. That was a good few weeks before the game came out, and um, yeah, the time we were kind of I, I was I was only a PS3 owner at the time, and um, yeah, we were kind of starving for kind of new, unique kind of games that were fulfilling the promise of this brand new machine. And I remember mm. quite a few of the reviews as well took that into consideration, didn't they? They rated it very highly. And they said, you've got to look at it in context, you know, there's not a hell of a lot out on PS3 just now, so... Yeah. I was going to say, some of the reviews are quite mixed, actually. They're quite disparaging, I thought, at the time when it came out. Some and some. Um, I think the the PS-only press, the PlayStation, official PlayStation stuff, tended to rate it a lot higher than the multi-format press, Mm. which is often a a syndrome with um, exclusive titles. Um, But... Were were you chaps who did rush out and buy it straight away? Were you immediately impressed, or did it live up to the hype? Well, you've got to remember this is pre-Uncharted World uh, territory. So mm. what what we were seeing with the facial animation was a step above anything else I'd really witnessed before. Um, and I, I think that was probably the, the major draw for me. But quickly, actually, the thing I fell in love with um, Heavenly Saw was the characters themselves. Um, although, you know, the, I felt like the facial animation and the... Uh, motion captures that they were you know oh god i saw so many videos of them saying this is how we're making it motion capture this motion capture mm. that and obviously it, and andy circus heavily involved yeah um and it seemed yeah I, I was definitely sold um very quickly although you know we're, we're getting into some maybe the, the weaker points but yeah see that's my if i if i could uh, immediately start with my sort of problems with the game is that that my memories of the game are almost exclusively to do with the cast of characters mm-hmm. and the motion capture. And I was uh, re- revising this afternoon, watching some of the gameplay sequences. And for a game that's called Heavenly Sword and based around sword combat, the sword combat is quite underwhelming, not particularly robust. Um, and in fact, of all the gameplay sequences, the ones I remember more uh, are the the sort of mini games that were some of which were seemingly shoehorned in to promote six axis use. You see, I have the complete opposite view to that. I, <laughs> and in fact, I was playing it um, last night before uh, joining Tony for some Battlefield, and I, uh, and I've been playing it on and off for about the past week uh, after finishing mm. Slaved. And what struck me was just how much it kind of took me back, and it reminded me how much I really, really enjoyed. The, the sword combat and how much how much I um, suddenly when it came out and I played it how I thought it was a vastly superior experience for me anyway to the God of War games um, mm-hmm. I found the uh, the fact that you've got this the kind of three stance mechanism um, which in which you can then build combos where you can switch stances halfway through to do different types of uh, aerials and stuff I just find it really nuanced and really clever I don't really think many games since then have attempted to to do anything quite like that, you know, they all tend to follow the sort of um, Ninja Gaiden model, whereas this did actually try to do something a little bit different with it. But, I mean, you look at the stance, the stances were, if I remember right, it was fast, strong, 
and I think there was a balanced one that was the bit in between. Well, there's now there's five. <clears throat> there's there's basically there's a distance where the you know it's kind of like the uh, Kratos you know spinny spinny yeah. attack thing, which is basically just pushes them away. Then you've got the yeah you've got the the heavy. Uh, attack, which is used mainly to break blocks, and then you've got the, the the kind of medium attack. But then you've got aerials, which is where you hold down the two shoulder buttons, and that gives you another another stance in effect, an aerial stance. And then you've got the specials, which you can then invoke once you've built up your combo meter high enough. Well, what I was going to say, I, I I feel like other games have adopted that, but they've adopted it in a more of a cleaner style. So um, it's been pushed over to different, um, you know functions on the controller so x y whatever it may be well, that, um, it does that as well because there's, there's there's got the two buttons for for the different types of attack but i'm not you're saying but I, I honestly but you know um having played the the god of war games up until i didn't play three but uh and um more recently playing the um dante's inferno which is again a similar style of game um this this one i think really just nailed the combat and i do th- i actually felt that the the because you're introduced to the Heavenly Sword um, partway into the game at the end of the first chapter, and up until then, you're just using a, a standard box standard sword, and you've only actually got two attacks. But as mm. soon as you get the Heavenly Sword, it then suddenly opens up and it gives you all these different combinations. And it makes you, it immediately makes you feel super powerful. And um, I actually uh, purposely played that level again last night for about the fourth or fifth time because uh, it's such a dramatic moment that because you've plodded through seven or eight. Um, uh, sort of combat scenarios, and then you get to this point where Bohan is there with your father in chains, and he's kind of mocking you and saying, "Hand over the sword." And then Nariko makes the decision to then take the sword, knowing that it's going to kill her, and she immediately feels powerful. And then these, uh, you get then attacked by horde, by you know increasingly difficult uh, hordes of foes, and you just the the foes that you've been struggling against five minutes earlier, you're just completely destroying them because the sword is just so powerful, and it encourages you to then try to um, determine the way to use the sword. It, it kind of gives you that opportunity to experiment before, you know, later on in the game, they ramp the difficulty up. What, what I was going to say, actually, with the stance system is that, although I say I think it's done maybe neater um, now, I actually quite like the way that it separates it into you making those decisions and stances. It reminds me more of the, um, maybe in some respects, well, um, Devil May Cry or something like that. Just I don't think it's quite maybe uh, as frantic. But I like the fact that you, when you have an enemy coming towards you, you actually take yourself and put yourself into that stance. So you're, you're prepping yourself rather than just pressing the button. So I, I think there's some benefit to it. It's more, it's more a case of using the stance to counter the, the enemies. So the different enemies glow. And this is something they, they, they had in Uncharted as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But in effect, the enemies glow different colours indicating to you what sort of stance you should use. Mm-hmm. So there is a cue, but then they only grow, glow briefly when they're attacking. So, again, you can mix and match what you do. I just think it's – well, I, I just find it extremely rewarding. But then um, I've not, you know, I'm not a great fan of games in this genre. So I guess maybe the, this, this particular mechanism within it really did appeal to me. Well, let's ask uh, Paul and uh, Darren. You're, a, a, as we know, a, a Ninja Gaiden expert. You're also a fan, as we'll find out later, of the combat in Enslaved. What did you find of the sword play in Heavenly Sword? Well, I came to this after Enslaved. And to be honest, uh, I, it was okay. And that's about the best thing I can say about the actual combat in the game. Um, it just, it, I'm really elitist about combat systems, and I prefer it when the enemies are really intelligent, challenging, and, you know, they're working together to really bring you down. A lot of the enemies in this felt like cannon fodder, and I'm not a fan of that kind of system. 
is that is that a problem a problem of the of the actual combat though, or is that just the problem of the way that they introduce the enemies into you? I mean, I think the, I agree with Zan on this point. I think the combat itself is interesting, but I think the way that they present the enemies, for instance, everybody seems to be just in an arena half the time, and they throw twenty enemies at once, and you just have to deal with them. Yeah. But I think the, the actual combat itself is unique enough, but the actual the way they present the enemies into you is actually quite dull and it's, repetitive. It's, it's more about throwing numbers at you, and also when you're, uh, you know, because often you'll be fighting six, seven, eight. Uh, enemies at the same time and often two or three of those will be of different types so it's about determining which ones to take out to weaken the group whereas an enslaved I think the most you ever really get up to is about four, four or five and it's a much more intimate system so yes the, the combat mechanisms are different although some things did carry over from the two from from this one Paul what about you uh, how do you feel about the sword play yeah I thought it worked and it worked well you know I had a lot of fun with it it was it's entirely kind of proficient mechanic you can pick and choose how you want to approach a situation i guess and you know as as gary was saying you know i like it when they glow and you can then choose to counter that and then and you, you build up your chain you know remember that the combo thing you can if that's how you want to approach the fight by building up a big chain without getting hit and stuff you can do that as well so yeah i thought it was i thought it was, it was good i think it Reminds me a little now of, uh, I didn't really think about it at the time, but having recently played Arkham City, it's not a million miles away from from the the Batman combat in that you are juggling a a group of surrounding enemies, Mm -hmm. but it's not as greasy, slick, smooth as that. Um, You don't sort of teleport magically from one enemy to another um, in in the style that Batman does in Rocksteady's games, but it does have that. It does have a a combo counter, doesn't it, which Mm -hmm. you can uh, keep elevating in the same fashion. It's it's yeah, it's very similar. It's very similar. Mm. The the only complexity really is that the combos are much more complex in um, in Heavily Sword. But yeah, I mean the fundamental mechanism is the same in both. I would say. Mm. Before we move away from combat, I I think. I remember the combat being the same problem I had with actually talking about God of War 3 a few weeks ago, which is it seems to be just a number of enemies before you can actually get, move on the story and get to um, which seem to be the bigger boss battles. There are more interesting in introducing you know, and, and defeating the bigger enemies. It just seemed too, too much like cannon fodder than anything else. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of my problems with it. It's, it's a really tough start when they kind of throw you into arena. You clear an arena, you go into another one. They literally it, throw you into arenas as well. <laughs> exactly, it kind of drops the floor. Yeah. Um, also, the, the actual impact of landing uh, hits on enemies, it just felt a little bit lightweight. I mean, it definitely had a lot of nuances to it. There's quite a lot you could take advantage of. But uh, the core feel of it, you know, the actual feeling you get from uh, like taking down your foes, it was okay, but it wasn't as just wasn't as impactful as I would have hoped. Absolutely, and I found that very much in Heavenly Sword. The lack of impact upon attacks was it just felt kind of insubstantial in a way. Yeah, yeah, that was that was I think my biggest problem with it. Um, let's talk about those boss fights quickly, um, including the final one, the infamous final one. <laughs> um, the thing I remember the best about Heavenly Sword, as I say, the characters and story, but uh, perhaps the most striking are, are the, the the menagerie of evil. Uh, baddies, um, King Bohan's cohorts, including his uh, grotesque son. And uh, I remember boss battles being mostly underwhelming, frustrating. Um, Gary, you're the you're the this stalwart fan. Um, do you think this game has better boss battles than I'm giving it credit for? Um, 
Probably not. No, I mean, <laughs> bearing in mind the age of the game, um, mm. it, it, they were kind of typical for that period. They reminded me a lot of the kind of Little Gear Solid um, boss mm-hmm. battles in that, you know, you, you're just increasingly introduced to even more freakish characters and you have <laughs> to use a particular attack to, you know, expose their weakness. Um, what I will say, though, is that I did find the, the bosses to be... Um, extremely memorable and characterful which is not something you can say for a lot of boss battles and i would argue uh that's one of the big problems with enslaved um you know each one is unique each one is beautifully characterized by andy circus uh, or one of the other lead actors um and they do portray a kind of there is a sense of cinema to the kind of menace and, and snideness and nastiness mm. that they actually portray which is not something you get I, I don't think in a lot of games so i think you know having i did the fox one last night which is one of the the early ones and stephen burkoff he's a fantastic character um but yeah the, the actual you know gameplay itself is is it's okay it's functional <laughs> who's the guy with the knives uh the, i think that is fox he throws them at you yeah i, I remember absolutely detesting him not not as in as a character just detesting him because of what he had done to my family mm. in that game he's really evil and you really grow to hate him yeah uh, they're pretty twisted stands for. they're they're an unpleasant bunch i think maybe they slightly slide too far into campiness away from away from the uh you know because the actual like the the home characters uh the the good guys as it were all right so one of them's a kind of child cat person but uh <laughs> but there what, is Kai? a yeah, Kai. So, you know, again, very memorable character and very charming. And in fact, uh, you know, potentially if there was going to be a sequel, um, which they've never ruled out, um, you would probably end up controlling Kai as uh, Nariko doesn't make it. But um, the enemies are a little bit, although as much as I, I found them memorable and likable, I think they're, they're, they're almost heading into kids' cartoon territory away from this quite fairly serious story. That um, that the game tells overall. Yeah, that's that's the kind of video game trope. I mean, it as is, I said, yeah. take the Metal Gear Solid series. I mean, yeah, all of those characters, yeah. like I say. I mean, it's it's, and in fact, some of those are, you know, some of those are some of the most memorable video game characters of the last sort of fifteen twenty years. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. And I I certainly when this game came out, I felt there was a lot of snobbery shown towards it. Um, there was the kind of goddess mm. of war label that was oh, attached God, to it, which that, yeah. irritated me no end. Um, <laughs> there was the fact that um, people obsessed over the minutiae in the game and didn't really, um, I don't know, just di- didn't really go with the flow. I went into it with no preconceptions at all. I knew I knew very little about the game other than that the last PS3 game I'd bought was this dreadful thing with dragons in it, which I, I can't even remember. That's how bad it was. The, it was the one from the guys. Oh, Factor 5 one. Yeah, the Factor yeah. 5 one, yeah, which is just awful. Mm. And I thought, right, I need to buy something as an antidote, and this is basically what I bought. And um I just found a lot of the criticisms of it to be, I don't know, vacuous. You know, they they, they just didn't stand up to scrutiny when you actually played mm. it. I mean, one of the, I'm sure you're going to talk about this, um, you know, sort of not, not mean to sort of digress too much, but um, one of the things that's, that even playing it to, you know, within the last few days that really stands out is just how beautiful it looks. You know, just the, mm. the, the, the range of colours and the, and the palette in the game was, was, unusual at the time because there were just a plethora of grey muddy either fantasy or futuristic based games around and this thing and just still are they still are and this thing just mm. stands out you know it just blows your mind with color particularly in the first couple of chapters you know so i 
you know, I, I felt it got a really, really hard press and still still does get a bit of a hard press. And then there's a good reason, I think, for that. It's just because Sony positioned it as this, you know, the be all and end all of this is why you need to buy a PlayStation 3. It's back in the days when they're still saying you need a second job. You know, you're, you want a second job to buy this console. <laughs> and I think that there was too much pressure put on that title to be everything for everybody. Um, but like I said earlier, I think you actually you go back and, and look what it achieved um, back then was it was I think it was laying foundations for some of the best games that we have now. If you look at something like Uncharted Three, you could well you know the Uncharted series. You could argue if there hadn't been enslaved, enslaved if there hadn't been Heavenly Sword out there, um, would that game exist today? Because of the way they did um, you know the motion capture, uh, you know very much about you know proper voice acting. Um, and even the color palette, I think, you know, there, there's a number of arguments to say that it really did lay some foundations, even if it's not the greatest game in the world. Um, I think it's one of the most important ones, certainly for this generation. I think what it what it really did, it's it's it's, you know, it's a saving grace, I suppose, for all the criticism had, is it really did raise the bar in terms of production values. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, you could you could churn out a game uh, with some flashy bits in it and the rest of the game would be fairly mediocre and, and there would be no real polish to it. But wow, um, that, you're, just, you're just talking about the whole of gaming up until no, this you, point. You know what I mean, in general. Okay, <laughs> but, when, but with Heavenly Sword, I mean, one of the key things they did, as, you, you know, as we've been talking about, rather than just having cutscenes, they had fully mo-capped, uh, fully produced, you know... Um, Cutscenes with lead actors, yeah, performance capture with mm-hmm. lead actors. It had a, it has a, I think, quite a compelling story and a pretty decent script, which again was something which is not you couldn't, you could argue, wasn't really established until this generation, and went on to you know have great games like Uncharted Two. Um, this was the first game that really did that and really raised the bar in terms of uh, production value. But I, you know, I can totally see the argument that in, from in, from a purely gameplay point of view and looking at its game mechanisms, that you could say. Okay, it was fairly mediocre and under the skin. It was just a a kind of God of War rehash. But I think it did do a lot more than that, um, and uh, we should really be grateful for that. I think part of the problem is that, uh, well, I think partly it was probably yeah, it was tall poppy syndrome in that it was set up uh, just you know just in terms of hyper marketing, which, which yeah, well, I was just gonna yeah, that was that was gonna be a, a, another part. Uh, it was set up to an already established and passionate Xbox fan base uh, and therefore ready to be knocked down by idiot fanboys. Um, Another thing is the, as we've already glossed past, but although one of the, I actually really enjoyed uh, Twing Twang, um, (laughs) that is one of the places where six-axis motion control was put in perhaps maybe at Sony's behest rather than for the good of the game. I don't know. I mean, it, Twing Twang kind of works. Um, the catapult section's more annoying, I think. Um, I think it's well documented that Sony were telling anybody at this first, well, I guess it's first party in respect that they were paying the bills. Um, second party second on this, party, I yeah. think you'd call them, yeah. Um, that they had to have these functions put in. I know there was a number of games, even uh, Gary's Dragon game. <laughs> They were, they were basically... No one can remember the name. It's Lair. Lair. Lair, yes. Yeah, yeah. I remember them saying... <laughs> I was trying to they, forget it. They, they wanted normal controls, but they were pretty much being told, no, you've got to go down this route. So... Yeah. And uh, Nathan Drake balancing on beams in Uncharted, which has, has since been removed from subsequent games and, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Twing Twang, which is the uh, 
archery sections, as it were. Although it's actually a kind of arrow firing yeah. bazooka. Oh, I, th- I thought it was a euphemism. <laughs> you thought it was a euphemism. You thought ti- it's time to play, time for twing twang. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but those, those those bits are actually quite cool. I do enjoy the, uh, the 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 fact that the enemies would slow down and react in interesting ways. I mean, this game is absolutely chock full of um, havoc, isn't it? There's, mm-hmm. It's got it's got havoc engine everywhere you look. Every time you walk into a room, you knock something flying, and there's apples and baskets rolling across the floor. Um, and uh, and similarly, when you when you shoot someone from distance, they they start ragdolling in slow motion. It has got uh, an infinite supply of hats in the game as well, and if you've noticed that, infinite hats. Yeah, so a lot of the puzzles are based on you throwing hats, these um, sort of uh, bamboo hats at shields and things to open doors. Oh god! And yeah. uh, the baskets themselves, you can stand there throwing hats for twenty minutes; and they never run out. The ah. infinite supply of hats, very useful in wherever this is set. Yes, strange, fictitious world that's sort of, uh, it's kind of like uh, Japan, but then it's like a, it's like a, a sort China, of fantasy, like alternate. Yeah, it's more China, yeah. China, mm. rather, yeah. Um, yeah, and the other thing that I think one of the reasons that people come away from the game perhaps remembering it less fondly than they might have done is the final boss, which mm-hmm. is just dire and a real disappointment because you finally get to fight King Bohan himself, played by Andy Serkis, a great, you know, great baddie presence throughout the game, far more than perhaps uh, Enslaved has. But then you get to fight him, and the last, the last fight is it's, a, it's the typical multi-stage thing. Um, it is rather like the one in in God of War, the first God of War game, in that it's just really irritating, um, frustrating, not satisfying. Um, pad breaking, yes. Pad breaking. It took me. Yeah. It took me three years. <laughs> I kid you not. I I would try every sort of every couple of months. I think right. I'll give wow. it. I'll give it another go. I've watched all the YouTube videos. I know how to do it. Uh, no. And then I think it was beginning of last year. I managed to do it. It's I remember. You, I remember you. I remember up. you tweeting about it. Yeah. yeah. I think the fact that I had it on loan um, was the thing that spurred me on to to actually get through it. I think it, I did it on about my fifth or sixth attempt, but uh, those first five or six, four or five attempts weren't pleasurable in any way. It was a real anticlimax. I think the bigger problem as well, they, they do like to play the cutscene before you have to redo the whole three sections of the battle. So it, mm-hmm. it would be nice if they just saved it after each um, you know, encounter. So, you, you know, section one, section two, section three. But if you died on section three... I believe you'd have to start all over again. Yeah, they you could have even rewatched the cutscene. Yeah. yeah, you couldn't skip them either, could you? Nope. No, they could have even patched that yeah. in both those functions, I... and it would have just made it, you know. And then more people would have got to see the rather lovely uh, bittersweet end sequence. So, in which King Bohan gets his eyes removed. Uh, uh, yeah, that wasn't the bittersweet bit I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> that was the bit that I enjoyed. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then you know, and uh, yes, Nariko gets to show her. Uh, remaining uh, humanity and allows grotesque, um, what's he called? Slug, grub, roach, <laughs> roach, uh, played by the always excellent Richard Ridings, to uh, take his now blinded father, who'd rejected him his whole life, away. Um, and then, yeah, and then Nariko dies, and there's a rather pretty funeral scene, and uh, Kai, the the very appealing cat girl, gets to take over, looking after the heavenly sword. There are some weird bits in that story as well. I, I remember um, Kai and I think it's maybe the knife guy 
But there was kind of accusations of like he was going to take her and, and do thing, mm-hmm. do some nasty stuff to her, and it it felt really wrong and sordid. I think that's probably why I, I grew a real hatred towards that character in yeah. particular because yeah, he, he was like, he was I'm going to you know, he's he's literally tormenting you, and I'm going to go and you know, rape your your well sister. I guess it's good to have some generally nasty characters. Though. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. I, know, I know it's a bit yeah. pantomime, but you know, it's it's good to to sort of you know push the envelope a little bit in that in that regard because there's so many of these these enemies and bosses are cookie-cutter bosses. You know, they're just the same in every game. very true. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so overall then, um, yeah, well, I, I, I still stick by, for me, what I said at the start is that I think the, the ambition of the game is not matched by its uh, execution overall. Um, I think it's enjoyable and worth playing for the story, but I don't think there's anything that much remarkable about the game. And in fact, the game frustrates in places where... It's almost like I don't know. I think watching the watching the uh, cutscenes on YouTube may be a more <laughs> gratifying experience. Oh no, you're not. You can't. You, no, I'm not going to let you have that. That's <laughs> that's an outrageous statement. That's basically <laughs> saying it's be better off watching it than you are playing it. There's no way that it's, it's that bad. Even four years on from its release, it's still you know kind of a visual tour de force. So even just for the graphics and the the aesthetics. As you said, are kind of you don't really get that. You didn't get it then. You didn't get it now. You know the colourful palette, um, and just to experience that world. I think visually alone, it's it's definitely worth. Well, you pick up for what ten pounds now. Oh, Less than yeah. yeah. I was going to say it is available very cheap, and so um, yeah, perhaps that perhaps that was a bit harsh on reflection. <laughs> just no, a I, tad. I think it. I think it suffers um, just that fatigue of being an early. PlayStation 3 or early generation title. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, there's it, some absolutely fantastic titles out there that were come out in the, the first came, generation. Came out too soon after God of War 2. That's the that's the biggest problem it had because mm. that that was only about 12 months before. Um, everyone wanted God of War 3. They didn't want this other thing. Good point. Well, yeah, I, I, although it's the goddess of war, people like to to joke about it. I I still think it has some merit over um, certain God of War games and. Mm-hmm. I think if you're after just something slightly different, um, I think Ninja Theory are a very good company of producing something that's just slightly off kilter. Um, it's well worth a look. I, I do enjoy the, well, I did enjoy the combat, um, and certainly the visuals is, is something to to you know, go back and and I think the characters maybe are a bit over the top. Uh, some of the bosses are a bit pantomime, like you say, but uh, it's a it's a really good sort of game. And I, I think if you're new to the PlayStation Three, it's still well worth picking up and playing. I guess if we say that if you get as far as the final boss and and it's too painful, maybe just watch the last cutscene. Yeah, <laughs> that I would agree with. Yeah. Yeah. Don't wait yeah, three okay. years like me. Uh, you don't get no yeah. trophies for it, so yeah, just watch the end yeah, no, no oh, trophies. Okay. Yeah. Although trophy it does support this. cloud saves, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah, well, one final thing we should mention, of course, uh, is the soundtrack, which is uh, Nitin Sawney, I believe, uh, as they worked with again on... Um, uh, enslaved and uh, is quite beautiful. Anyone else a fan? I'm actually not a fan at all. I, I actually really didn't really? like it. Yeah, I don't. There was something kind of running through Heavenly Sword, and it's maybe because you know I'm a big fan of kind of traditional uh, Japanese film and stuff like that. But there was a real distinct lack of what I felt would to be authenticity. I don't know if I'm being really harsh or just uber pedantic here, but. Oh, both. Yeah, prob- no doubt. Yeah, as a kind of part of my personality, but I just, I just, it came across to me as being not authentic. Basically, you know, musically, audio-wise, it was, it was competent, but 
I, I don't the world think that it they're in, it's it's a twist on it is, uh, as yep. we said earlier it's, it's a twist on genuine history in that it has fantasy characters giant mm. cockroaches and yeah you know, absolutely like this. yeah that's what i mean and, and as well as the world as well and you know his narico scottish dad stuff like that just kind of <laughs> jarred with me you know he but, was fantastic i don't know i don't know i thought it was a bit a bit bizarre one of the things i, I want to quickly talk about before we move on um is that the, the involvement of andy circus you have to remember when this game came out, Lord of the Rings was ri- well, ridiculously popular still. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember his involvement in particular was that you know, Sony were promoting that and saying, look at that, you know, he, he was Gollum. He was Gollum and look, he's doing all this motion capture. I mean, that was a really important step for the industry as well to bring in people that had really worked quite deeply in film um, and doing something that was relatively new to cinema at that point, what felt new at least. And um, more importantly than just bringing in big names, it was people that were invested in the game. Yeah, working closely with the development house and actually yeah, coming I mean, to if, work. If you've ever seen there. any of the documentaries on Andy Serkis working with Ninja Theory, he is passionate about the work. He's not just a voice that comes in, throws in a second-rate performance and then buggers off. Mm. He's got writing... No, he's fully involved, yeah. Yeah, he's got writing credits in Heavenly Soul. I think he has in Enslaved as well. He definitely contributes on a, on, on a number of levels. And yeah, yeah, I'm pretty he, sure he's he a motion director as well. Off. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen him on uh, film programs and heard him on the radio on what are ostensibly, you know, traditional movie programs, and he will quite happily bring up his work with Ninja Theory and in the world of video games on that, and not talk about it with it, you know, no no disparaging tone mm-hmm. whatsoever. He he considers it every bit the part, and you know, we're going to see more of this as uh, as gamers grow older, and you know, there's there's quite a lot of people in Hollywood now who uh, have grown up with video games and don't see it as that you know that kid kid toy thing anymore. So. Does anyone know? I mean, it was a critical mixed reception, so I mean, maybe a critical success to a point, but was it a failure in the end? Uh, I mean- commercially, I think it did well because because of its position, it sold over a million copies, and uh, but they've I mean, been quite reluctant to to talk about a. Heavenly Sword 2. Sony, Sony own the IP. And yeah. That's the problem, yeah. yeah. It's whether Sony want to do anything with it or not. So, so Ninja Theory are independent, but um, and Sony could still presumably you know, commission them to make mm. it. Or, but obviously they're now busy doing uh, rebooting Devil May Cry for Capcom. Um, but uh, when I spoke to Ninja Theory last year, um, they certainly didn't you know, rule it out. It's just that it was, up, they said it's up to Sony. So um, I guess the fact that they haven't pursued it means that it didn't make them enough money for the investment. I can only assume, or maybe it'll be one that they'll bring it back for a launch title for the PS4 or something like that, rather than go for an iterative sequel on this gen. Or perhaps Sony have got, Sony have got the God of War, you know, maybe they thought in gamers' minds that the two of them are quite equated and it's put the money behind Kratos. I'd certainly hope that gamers the world over are unable to discern these two games. You know, I mean, the combat, at a glance, might look similar, but they're night and day in terms of the experience that they offer. Oh, absolutely. Gamers still think Castlevania, you know, they still refer to that as being a God of War clone. It's the whole Doom clone mm, thing, remember ridiculous. back in the FPSs yeah. and stuff mm-hmm. like that? It's just, a, it's just a, a gameplay mechanic. It's not the actual game itself, but they don't seem to understand that. So it's strong enough to get a sequel, we think. But, Absolutely. You know, I don't know where, you know, like I say, the public interest would be there enough for it, but I'd certainly buy it. I think, to be honest, I mean, given the amount of uh, promotion that Sony did in the first place for it, the mere mention of Heavenly Sword 2 would get people whipped up in a frenzy, I think. You know, it was synonymous with uh, the PlayStation 3's early big pushes, and I think that carries a lot of weight. 
Well, they couldn't let anyone else make it, though, could they? It wouldn't be it, right. The thing is, it would end up being like a crackdown too. Mm. You know, like um, uh, Real Time Worlds. Mm-hmm. They didn't mm. want to make a crackdown too. They got pushed aside. And I don't think that worked out well for anyone involved. Crackdown 2 was an okay game, but it should have been so much more. Yeah, it happens. So, I never bought myself a copy of Enslaved Odyssey to the West. Um, I didn't have to, because, kindly, Mr. Darren Foreman here sent me one in the post. uh, Just like that. Um, And I believe, Darren... Uh, you, I wasn't the only person who was a uh, recipient of a gift of Enslaved Odyssey to the West from you. No, several people have now had that honour. Yeah, uh, and you also brought some more copies to Glasgow. I sure did. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you, how many copies of Enslaved Odyssey to the West did you buy in total? Do you know? Probably around eight. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Darren. That is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I've given away two. <laughs> yeah, I brought three. So- <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. I, uh, I've I've not even bought one. So between uh, three of the five of us, um, so Gary, did you just buy the one copy? Oh, I just bought one. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Um, so, b- but between the rest of you, uh, you've like bought something like fourteen copies <laughs> of Enslaved Odyssey to the West, and still it didn't sell well. What the hell? Yeah. Now, what is it about this game? Uh, back to Darren, that inspires such a need for evangelism. Not only is it a fantastic game, I think it's one of those games that was largely overlooked. And really, I wanted to get the message out there that this game was worth your attention. It's, I mean, the thing is, I mean, it came out of absolutely nowhere. And that's the thing that really Mm. impressed me. Mm. I had heard almost nothing about this game, and my finger was always on the pulse. Mm. I remember the demo turning up on... Xbox Live. Some people loved the demo and some people really didn't, but uh, Tony, you didn't like it. No, I remember being the one of the guys on Twitter uh, basically saying, I don't see what everyone else sees in this. Um, ah. for, for actually a lot of the, we're probably going to cover many of the reasons why, why that come up, you know, such as the, you know, the, the false jumping you know, where you can't mm. die and all that kind of stuff. And we'll, we'll talk about that later, but I just didn't see anything in the characters that would, was drawing me in. And I think a little bit was a little, uh, some snobbery from um, Uncharted 2 drifting over onto me um, because it, clearly it wanted to be something like that. And I just thought, well, I, it doesn't come anywhere near. How dare it? Mm. Um, You're telling and- me that the moment that the ship broke in half and you were almost pulled out the back, you didn't get any kind of tingle up your spine? <sighs> Not enough for me to want to buy it. In fact, the demo was... Um, wasn't a great build either. There was a lot of stuttering and frame rate issues, a lot of the tearing was on the screen. Was this the 360 that you played? It was, was it? yeah. Really? No, it was, no, no, it was actually it was the PS3. I played on the PS3 because that's where the demo came out first. Uh, um, right. And uh, yeah, I remember actually you know, contributor Sean, who you're here next week on, on the show. I remember having big long arguments with him about you know how it, it wasn't particularly great and you know shouldn't really be anyone's interest, which is actually quite unlike me because I don't tend to uh, bad mouth stuff I haven't played. But yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of it. Such a troll, Tony. It was the complete opposite for me to to Darren in that um, because I I loved Heavenly Sword so much, I I knew Mm. about this game about a year out and I'd kind of been keeping track on it because it was two two things that I loved. First of all, it was by Ninja Theory who at that time, you know, their stock price with me was sky high. And secondly, it was using the Monkey franchise, which, you know, I'm a child of the 70s and I adore the TV series Monkey. You know, I've got Mm. all of them on DVD and, you know, I just, the whole... 
the, 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 the mixture was just intoxicating to me. Um, I didn't play the demo because I don't play demos, but um, I just couldn't wait to get hold of it. So I think we know what's coming here. Somebody was really not expecting anything from this game at all. <laughs> and somebody was really, really looking forward to it. Now, listeners, can you guess <laughs> what happened next? Um, for, for what it's worth, I played the demo, and I thought it was really cool, and it immediately went on my, I would like to play that at some point, but I'm not going to rush out and buy it for £40 on day one list. Um, I hadn't played Heavenly Sword at the time, or had I? I can't even remember now. Um but uh, regardless, uh, I I enjoyed the feel of the demo and I, and I, and it and it looked pretty again. You know, really really cool art style and lots of color, lots of lovely lovely color um, from the uh, from the artist uh, Alessandro, tiny Alessandro, <laughs> um, who's a fan of redheads, as we've we could have guessed from the games. But oh, as anyone with taste, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, okay. Um, so, uh, Paul, what, what was your initial? Uh, did, did you were you hyping? Were you hyped for this one, anticipating it, or no? Or I, the other I knew way? it was. I knew it was there, there, thereabouts, you know. But um, at the time, there was a lot of games coming out. There had been a, a kind of a lull, and there was a whole slew of games coming out. So I was like, I knew it was there. I'd for once checked out. I don't play demos, but I did actually play the demo, and then I just decided to back. Said, so, yeah, like yourself, I thought the it's nice to see colours again, you know. And uh, I saw like, yeah. I saw a lot of the character animations and, and the graphics on a demo. I thought they were okay, but um, yeah, it was the character animations and, and how they would talk. I was like, all right, okay, this is something quite special. So then I put it on my to buy I, I list. Remember, I remember being annoyed by how he ran. I think that was one of my my major points. Was ah, oh, it's it's all just you know he's that's to be a real thing to get worked up about, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. It's a it's a form of life. That's the thing. I mean, the moment the shipped on sideways, I knew that I had to buy it. I just <laughs> didn't expect to be buying eight, you know. <laughs> it was the, no. It was the uh, I, I, you know, I still I was watching watching him in action again today. It's still you know the fact that they made this monkey character look simian without actually making him a monkey with a with a tail, a belt for a tail, and Sash. things like that. Just really, just really cool. Um, obviously, trip. Uh, was Tripitaka the priest, androgynous priest from the um, not so androgynous in this context. game, not so no. androgynous. No, uh, an attractive, freckly redhead, um, and uh, no Sandy. But of course, Pigsy again. Uh, Richard Ridings does turn up in the what about second half, I suppose, or maybe second two thirds, and then got his own DLC, which we may have time to talk about as well. Um, so, Darren, uh, you played a demo, then you went out and bought eight copies, not quite straight away, but um, <laughs> no, it took did a while. You, you you absolutely uh, you caned it, didn't you? You you destroyed this game in in quick start. Here's the thing: I didn't actually go straight into it. Like um, as Paul oh. was saying, there was a lot of other games in it, uh, coming out at this time, and it kind of got lost in the rush to a degree because it came out yeah. the same day in the UK as Castlevania: Lords of Shadow, ah. fairly big game. Mm. And um, I played the first level, like as far as the demo went, slightly into the second one, and put it on hold for just a short time while I. Got it into Castlevania, which I had also been waiting a long time for. Mm. Um, after that, I got back into Enslaved, and from that point on, I pretty much played it start to finish in one sitting. Right, and uh, did you, you go for repeat plays with, with your powered-up monkey and harder difficulty settings and on all that malarkey? Well, I actually played on hard for a start, so I kind of, of got straight through. Yeah, then so, I went, so did I. Yeah. <laughs> then I went back for the achievements, basically. 
There's no picking up all the red tech ops and pass right off the red tech ops. You have no right to be in this game. Yeah, let's 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 mention those tech orbs. I think um, we know uh, that Gary perhaps uh, the game didn't meet his expectations. Were, were, were these uh, were this collectible nonsense part of your problem at all? Oh, it's probably seventy or eighty percent of the problem with it. With me. really, yeah. Could could you not just ignore them? Well, you can't, can you? Because no, really. first yeah. of all, if no. you put them there, you can't really ignore them. Because as a gamer, you are programmed to collect but, things. Yeah. But the red um, orbs are an upgrade path um, anyway, so not yeah, without yeah, yeah. redeeming yeah. features. I think the, the the orbs are the root cause of two massive problems I had with the game. The first was the, the absolutely atrocious camera on it. Now, bearing in mind that um, uh, Heavenly Sword, there is no camera control. The cameras are fixed. No. So they got around that problem uh, using fixed perspective. So in... in um, uh, enslaved, they obviously uh, free the camera up, but the camera always picks the wrong direction every single time. Now, I played through this game from start to finish again uh, just over a week ago, so this is fresh in my mind, and the pain is still raw. Doing um, your homework. Um, and the the, the beauty of the game, the wonderful vistas that you get, you know, the, the, particularly when you're scaling the, 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 the huge buildings and, and when you're up in the mountains and you've got these wonderful views, are constantly ruined by the need to go and collect orbs. Because every time you look at a wonderful vista, floating in front of you are five bobbing orbs oh, just in your peripheral vision. <laughs> so then you have to go and get them. So you could, you never ever get any time to actually experience it unless you purposely mm. step back and do it. Unlike a game like Uncharted, I'm just finished playing Uncharted 3, so again, this is fresh in my mind, mm. which saturates you in the view when you see it. You're, you're forced to look at it for several yeah. seconds. It, and it completely ruined what was by far the, the, the greatest achievement of that game in, in terms of its its look. It looks beautiful, you know, at times. Uh, and, and, you know, as Paul was saying, in terms of the colour palette, and I'm sure you can go on a lot more about that, but utterly ruined by the orbs. Well, wow. I, I'm going to disagree with you, I'm afraid. Um, not about the, the camera. I think the camera at times, uh, in fact, many uh, similarities to what we were talking about Eco the other, the other week, that, you know, I felt there was a, a brilliant environment, and, but I wanted to see more. I was always struggling and wanting to see more, but it was too busy trying, trying to tell me where to go via the camera. Um, the, but when it comes to the orbs, the orbs are important because they're the route to upgrading your abilities. So you have to collect them. It's not something you can just buy. You get them from defeating enemies, though. You do, but not enough to really. I mean, I, I can only talk about from playing on hard. Where <clears> you, they could have just rebalanced it yeah. to give you more when you quite, killed enemies. Yeah, quite possibly. But we got to talk about the game that is there. And for me, I you know, it, it was maybe a bit of OCD where I wanted to collect this stuff. But by collecting this stuff, there was quite often where you were saying you'd see one up in you know a balcony or whatever. And you would actually go over to that balcony, no, 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 and that, you would go find them. Where previously you different. could just run through the environment. That's that's different. Okay, what I'm talking about is is when you have when you're in an environment where you want to enjoy the the perspective, when you want to, want to enjoy the artwork that's been you know these guys have spent m- months and years building. All you're faced with is is little blobbing globules of light everywhere <laughs> that you're then forced to go, and so you're constantly zigging zagging across the the environment. Um, not getting a chance to actually look at anything. You're right. They hide the the orbs in certain places to to introduce a uh, an element of exploration, which mm-hmm. is actually yeah. pretty limited, to be quite honest. It's it's yeah. and it, I, I can I kid you not. This game felt like playing Donkey Kong 64 all over again because um, Ooh, not only do, is there vast <laughs> amounts of these bloody orbs everywhere, and you get them from defeating enemies, but they but they they pull you out of the world. What sort of place is this where you've got mm. these giant globules of and, light bouncing and everywhere? And for that, I can I think we can all agree because 
there is definitely more elegant ways they could have done it. Um, yeah. the, the orbs for me are the biggest well, they, sticking point. They did it in the previous game because in Heavenly Sword you had a very okay, it's a bit of a cliche, but you had pots, okay. But you know, but at least it it you know when you're looking at the environment, you're look, looking at it and thinking, hey, look at that video mm. gamey flashing light thing over there. Mm. You know, I it just totally ruined it for me. I have to wow. say, you know something, I think you might actually dislike these collectibles more than me. I mean, I thought I I thought I disliked them, but man, you have got problems with those obs. They're, de- they're definitely they're definitely not game ruin. I wouldn't go that far. I'd say no, absolutely I, not. I, it takes, it's an interesting inclusion, but it's how they're they're scattered around the world that I think is quite distracting. They seem to be mm. in really random places. My big problem was that they were tied to achievements, and I had to go trawling through the game well, that's several times, looking just in the most <laughs> obscure places for goddamn orbs, you know. Yeah, they they put them in places that is very gamey. So they put them uh, hidden totally. behind things, or yeah. slightly rather than putting them somewhere where okay, if you go there, you get rewarded with another fantasy. And I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not saying it, it ruined the game for me. I'm saying it ruined the experience. That's that's mm. what I should yeah. have said. I think the bigger problem is that there's too many of them. Um, it's too many, and it's just I mean, the position there, of there's them. over. I, I believe it's around two thousand orbs in in all, and it's mm. because they group in groups of five, groups of ten. Uh, and you know, it, rather than just being a singular glowing dot on the map, it's this huge big red blob over. And all you know, of them uh, were um, hidden, actually using the shortcomings of the camera, which is a yeah. bit embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Really. So, Cheating, so you've yeah. got some, you've got some at the front of the screen where the camera doesn't naturally go during progression. So you pretty much have to do the sort of old school style Resident Evil thing of hugging the walls of every arena to make sure well, that you've swept everything up. Here's here's a little a little controversial statement for you. Um, if you kind of read the the rule book on video game design. One of the things, one of the, the tricks that video game designers will use, uh, which once you know about it, does actually ruin a lot of games. Don't tell us, play, don't tell us. <laughs> is if they don't have any confidence in terms of the value and length of the game, what they'll do is they'll go back and put collectibles in, which you absolutely. know because they've done it in crack. They did it in Crackdown and they've done it in lots of other things. Yeah, absolutely. And this just smacks, you know, this is like a huge monkey-sized punch to the face to say, bang, we, right. have, we don't have confidence Uncharted in the Uncharted 3 has plenty of collectibles itself. So. I don't, I don't think it's they didn't have confidence <laughs> in the world and the characters in the game. I think it's a, it's a thing that developers need to put in by the publisher to artificially prolong the, the game time. I think that they're, they're mistakenly believe that we enjoy looking for these damn things. Well, some people do. <laughs> some people like, really exactly, do. Exactly, some people do. The majority of us would rather take it out of the back, put a shotgun to the back of its head, and goodbye collectibles. Oh no, but well, then you blow more small th- orbs over the place and I'd have to collect those as well. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, mentioned, you mentioned Uncharted. I mean, it has the equivalent of Uncharted collectibles in the, in the masks. So it's not like it has oh, yeah. one uncollectible. It has, like, this is where the Donkey Kong 64 reference comes from. It has mm. two, effectively two different types. And if, in fact, if you include all the, you know, the different types of orbs, the, the, you know, the different volumes of orbs you get from the, the, the creatures, then it's actually got three. So... Yeah, collect just... some up so back in though. Look at Arkham City. I mean, that is that that actually when I was playing that, I thought of Donkey Kong sixty four, and I was but thinking it, when I almost when did spewed we up when I seen all those. Arkham City is a good example of the game being quite. I mean, I've not played it yet, but from what I've been told, it's actually quite short. So again, you, it, there is this kind of sliding scale where the shorter the game, the more collectibles get loaded but into it. But it also <laughs> gives you narrative and story and you know riddles to solve rather than oh, just. Yeah, I, I mean, and. We, we're not here to discuss Arkham City this time. So but, let's um, get off the all point, otherwise we could be here for another... <laughs> yeah, I think we're going a bit farther than this uh, one. Let's, uh, let's talk the thing that you spend most of the time doing then, which is the combat. 
of course. Um, so it's not a sword this time. It's a stick being monkey. It's a staff, um, very big, meaty, thick red staff with golden ends. Um, now, as Gary said, when I was a kid, I used to adore the uh, Japanese TV series Monkey. And uh, after the show, I used to run outside and I had a little metal pole with gold Bit. tape on the ends and I used to beat up uh, <laughs> lampposts. Yeah. So this was kind of uh, fantasy, um, yeah, sort of fulfillment of about 30 years getting to be Monkey with his monkey staff, um, wearing his headband, getting told off by uh, Tripitaka. Um, and uh, the combat is sort of, it's not quite as um, intricate as you might, I might have expected. Um, this isn't the first game based on the, the monkey legend, by the way, or the monkey story, but um, it's the first one that's probably really attempted to do staff-based combat. But one thing the combat did grab me with straight away is that it does feel incredibly meaty. And the thing that they they arguably, some of us felt that they failed to do in Heavenly Sword, which was to uh, give the feeling, the player the feeling of connecting with blows. And obviously the fact that the enemies are metal, by and large, um, probably helps that. But you get a very satisfying clunk and clang with everything you do. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I need to be Gary on, on this point from the Heavenly Sword's point of view. I, I think a lot of people are very harsh on the combat of... Um, enslaved and i'm not overly sure why now i, I can only speak from my experience and I, and I did play on hard so that may vary if you were just playing on normal and that's not a snobbery thing that's just trying to talk about how where i'm coming from mm. um i think it's fair to say that the combat in the first half isn't particularly that interesting um you know once again it's kind of just cannon fodder they don't really there's not too much variety as enemies it's just the, the robot type guys and you tend to hit them with your staff and they blow up and you move on but the second half of the game, they, they add lots of different, um, lots. they add a number of variety um, of mechs that have uh, different abilities and shields. Some have EMP attacks. Some can do some real damage. Now, on, I have a feeling when I've been speaking to people on normal, they just breeze through the game and just go, well, it's quite boring. Um, where on hard, you can really only take two hits and you're dead. Um, and by Until you've powered up your life bar anyway. Well, <laughs> Even then, it is pretty brutal, actually, on hard. It's, it's a pretty mm. tricky game, um, which I don't know if it, it led me to, to do things slightly different because I really had to focus on what would just be the, you know, the cannon fodder, so the normal mechs, just hit that with the staff, and the guys with the shields. Because um, the guys with the shields, if they got anywhere close to you, you would be doomed, um, and you had to balance between you know, getting rid of the, the smaller mechs around you, taking down those shields, and quite often actually lure them into positions where there will be a guy where there's this thing called a brutal attack. You take down its shield and you can actually bull, normally pull off its head or whatever and it would call it like a, a bomb. Oh, those are, those are cool. An EMP. Uh, and they were absolutely vital for surviving in, in the harder level uh, difficulties. Now, I don't know if that's different from anyone that played on normal. Um, maybe you can advise because to me, I thought the, cap, the combat was actually quite intricate um, and I enjoyed uh, lots of different varieties and the weapons, you know, such as the a staff that could turn into the gun as well, um, that you'd actually be needing to use that on, on distant enemies just to stun them. I suppose often. when I say it's lacking in intricacy, I mean I'm comparing it to, to, you know, we had this conversation recently in the God of War show about comparing the, the sort of the Japanese way of doing things. Um, you might call the, the combat in Devil May Cry or Bayonetta intricate in that it's incredibly complex, deep and very sharp. Whereas the combat in Enslaved, I thought it felt great and it was extremely enjoyable, but it didn't it simply didn't have as many options or 
you didn't you know you don't have to start sort of counting individual frames of animation or anything like that yeah i mean that's the thing i mean the way that i tend to play combat oriented games is to distill it down to what works you know there's a lot of games with a lot of really you know you've got a lot of pointless upgrades castlevania is really bad at this you can upgrade it's lords of shadow yeah yeah lords of shadow you can upgrade an absolute crap load of moves. You know, you can get all these really... They're visually quite impressive whip-based moves, but none of them are any more effective than just some of your standard combos. Um, and just the fact that it feels so damn good when you're actually attacking them, making contact, and the takedowns, as Tony said, are amazing, you know? They're nice, they're brutal. They really show that Monkey is... He's unrefined, but he's savage and he's powerful. And... Targeting the right enemies first is definitely a good idea because during these takedowns, say you've got an explosive enemy, mm-hmm. just by taking him down first, you can essentially stop the fight there by throwing them into his pals and blowing them up using the, using the mech, you know? Paul, combat, any thoughts? Um, the first time through, I thought it was okay, but I thought it was quite good. You know, it was quite satisfying. You know, I like the, the slowdown, you know, and the finishing blow that gave you a, mm. a real sense of kind of. Conclusion, I guess, but mm-hmm. I'm replaying it, and I, I I just think there could have been more done to the the one on one combat. I know you're saying that it's um it's good in a situation, you know, there's different enemies, different enemy types, and stuff like that. You need to approach the fight differently. I would yeah. I would prefer a more kind of robust series of attacks, you know, like a, a decent parry. There is a parry in there, I guess, but um just more options is, is what I would want, basically. Become, I've got to admit I that guess, during my second playthrough, I ended up using the ranged stuff a lot more than the enclosed stuff when I could. But you can get it powered up as well. It's much more powerful. It, it ends the fights almost instantly. Yeah. You're only really limited by your ammunition. The, the combat gets more intricate and interesting as the game goes on because you unlock more and more powers, um, both part of the story and you know, you, you, un- you unlock the ability to fire... Um, and various other things. Electrify, is that right? Uh, it's is plasma blast. Stun, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. plasma, that's right. Um, so it's one of those things where, I mean, a new game plus exists on this, doesn't it? It does, I think. Yeah. Um, it does, yes. And, and I think it, it could alleviate a number of issues. Uh, I think the orbs stay collected, is that right? Yeah. So, so Gary's problem may be um, alleviated on a new game plus. Um, you start with all your combat moves, so the slightly limited combat of the first half of the game on the first game Breeze will be through. alleviated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it might be a game that actually really f- blossoms, flourishes in, in new game plus. Whether that's acceptable or not in this world of umpteen essential to play single-player games and multiplayer games, I don't know. But, um, but, but then if, if it's, I think if it's it blossomed better, fine then, enough the first time through. It's just that um, you, it is a more... You do have a lot more options once you're powered up, and I think maybe they could have made Monkey a little bit stronger from the start, just Mm. to keep it more a bit diverse. I mean, it is the first thing you're playing in the game, and some people took exception to the fact there's only really one or two combos at that point. Mm. And then, uh, does that that actually, is that a mistake also in that it leads the player to not learn more combos because those combos continue to be too effective i completed bayonetta and devil may cry using about two combos i think it's true yes i think Darren's right i think it's true of most games i think you can, once you've the same is heavenly sword as well to be to be honest with you um i was just going to add that 
um, what you were des- when you were describing it, uh, and again having played the two games back to back, Heavenly Swords mm. and Enslaved have virtually the same combat system. Really, the only difference is that Heavenly Sword has these the two different stances, which means you've you've got basically four times as many combos, uh, and that you the difference in, in in Heavenly Sword is that you tend to get multiple enemies at the same time of different types rather than one or two of each type. But you still, the technique you use is still exactly the same. You have to yeah. you have to take out the, the the weaker ones first and don't get too close to the ones that can do you real damage, which is exactly the same. You know, um, the feeling for the player is very different though because the chunkier sprites yeah, or the well, chunk, sprites yes, is an in old, old language. Word, yeah, because it's yeah. it's more up close and larger. Yeah, so you, you get a much more sense of physicality to the yeah, combat, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I would agree with. What I was going to add is I found the staff bits, you know, where you're shooting them, to be totally unrewarding and completely unnecessary. Really? It felt to me that they, yeah, it felt to me like those bits were added to ensure that they got a tick in the box with uh, the first-person shooter generation so that they, <laughs> they feel they've got some sense of... Uh, uh, there's a, a, some form of combat that they can also deal with because you could, like you said, if you play it on normal, you can just muddle your way through but, but bashing then, a few buttons. I've but got then, to say that I would quite easily take most stuff into any fight in a Call of Duty game. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I just found it very unrewarding. I mean, I played it on normal, so it's probably a bit different. But uh, I mean, to be honest, I don't enemy, think that would be too different. But the, the thing with me is, I like sniping. Sniping is my favourite form of range combat. Yeah. And how accurate the stuff was. The satisfying explosion as you destroyed a mech. It it felt good, you know? I mean, that felt enjoyed, good to me. Uh, I enjoyed taking the rhino down, the rhino boss. Um, the bosses actually in this were, were pretty good fun, and, by and large. Yeah. And, and they much had better real- than uh, Heavenly Swords. Well, they're all the same. I, I would disagree because, I mean, you fight the dog, I don't know, four times, I think. Yeah. Right. Uh, and the rhino is just... <laughs> no, I think it's more than that because it comes back sort of half... Dead, doesn't it? He's bought eight them. copies. Don't argue with him. <laughs> yeah, um, and then the rhino is just basically a bigger dog. Uh, it's not the method of beating that is completely different, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah you've got, is, to, you've got yeah. to take. Yeah, obviously, you've got to take out the and the, uh, the cloud. The cloud becomes involved. And, and in fact, the, the first time you actually fight the dog, you can't kill it anyway. No, no. But then you've got the two two cloud fights with it, and then the one with the rhino. But I, you know, they it just. Much as I quite I enjoyed those fights, I thought they were really good. Um, it does just repeat what it did before, it, and we'll probably get onto that later. But I, you know, I have this sense with the game that it's it's like half a game that was strung out, and particularly the last third. Um, well, uh, I can't talk about that later. Ah, oh, completely different story. But well, um, no, to your I, point, I get, actually, I, I get what you're saying. Uh-huh. To, to your point about adding the the staff as a weapon, as in uh, shooting people. I, <laughs> I understand what you're saying about it being a tick on the back of the box, but also if, if this is a game just with a staff, I think then we'd probably be saying, well, the staff should do a lot more. It, it's just, then it becomes like the God of Wars, or, you know, you just use the, uh, well, <laughs> what do you call those, the things? You rush around the, the blaze of chaos, chaos or whatever, the blaze of whatever they may be for each game. You, Alan. Yeah, you want more Cathedral, variety yeah. actually in the staff. So, I, you know, I, I like the fact that it was there and, you know, you had the ability to shoot things. And I certainly felt like at the back end of the game, I needed the ability to to take. There were snipers in there. Yeah, you, you, need a range, you need a ranged attack in it, and that's why it's there. You know, it's. I don't. Yeah. I, I think saying that it's, that. it's a it's tad just, cynical it, saying, you know, it's it's to tick a box. I think it's it's just it's just there. It serves a purpose in certain situations that you need it. But, um, but it's, it's not a, it's not a central part of your your repertoire. I don't think. 
see if I just elaborate my point a little bit, the the reason that, that I made that statement is that the staff is so is so overpowered compared to the mm-hmm. you know when you're shooting it rather than when you're fighting with it. So it just felt to me like every time I was using the staff, it felt like I was cheating. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I could have this fight and I would actually quite enjoy doing it, or I could just pull the staff out and kill it with one shot, and it just. To me, it just didn't feel right. I mean, the bits where you're sniping from a distance and you've got the ones high up that are taking you out, I can totally go with that. And, and like I said, you know, I, I, in, like you said, uh, Paul, uh, you do need a ranged attack, just like in Heavenly Swords' twin tag, twin twang, which does the same <laughs> thing. But the fact that you could use the staff whenever you want and you can't use the cloud whenever you want, the fact you could use the staff whenever you want just made, some, you know, particularly on normal, just made some bits of it just feel wrong yeah you, know, you should have made them like the hammer of dawn it made me feel incredibly yeah. powerful when i was using it you know it's just yeah. like how dare you take me on eat staff blast it almost <laughs> feels like well what's the point of me hitting them with the staff i can just shoot them mm, I, I can't agree with that you've got right. limit, you yeah. have got limited ammo in it though but i think the secondary fire on the staff is quite good the, the stun i think that, mm-hmm. that could have been used a lot better but you do have limited ammo so you, you can't just go in you know go into uh kind of over-the-shoulder first-person come over and just shoot them all down. Yeah, you do need to actually hold on to them, especially as you're progressing the first time. You don't have that many. But um, I I, I like to... I think there is a more elegant solution to using the staff in the game. I don't think they really nailed it very much, but again, you can choose to use it or not. Yeah, I mean, it it really is just the balance between ranged and close combat. I mean, Mm. Monkey is powerful, you know? You, You should... When he's in close, you'd expect that he would be able to do more damage than when he's at ranged. Mm-hmm. It, when people are ranged, you expect them to be doing s- small uh, flea bite attacks to, to your health. Chip damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chip damage, basically. You know, whittling you down while letting close guys do all the damage. It's completely the opposite in this. And when you're in close, you actually feel a, le- a lot less powerful than at range. And it's, the balance just seems slightly skewed out of focus. Mm. So mixed feelings about the combat overall. Um, the other thing that, uh, as you'd expect, Monkey spends a large amount of his time doing is uh, platforming. So um, if we follow the idea that uh, Heavenly Sword begat Uncharted, then um, then perhaps Enslaved was uh, begat of Uncharted. Um, the platforming is reminiscent of Nathan Drake clambering about with one sort of notable difference, and that is he has a Mirror's Edge-style runner's vision, or monkey sight, as I like to call it. Uh, he sort of he sees available handholds in glowing golden yellow. Uh, controversial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but Anyone to be, care to, to be, comment? To be fair, they do that in Uncharted as well. Yeah, They've they got do. these nicely, neatly painted shelves where you can climb. Yeah. This is true. This is um, true. If you didn't have that, it would be very frustrating for the player, I yeah. think. I, I'm a th- I, I mean, I've defended this aspect of, of the game a number of times on Twitter in particular. Um, I understand people's frustrations and not wanting to be told where to go and what to do. You know, I, I, it worked in Uncharted. I could, be, you know, I could just make my own decisions. You weren't making your own decisions. There is really only one route you can take in Uncharted. And like you say, they, they slightly, uh, you know... Uh, Unless you're collecting the treasures. Well, yeah, sometimes there was. That's yeah. true, but then they argue the same in um, Enslaved. Yes, I mean, there would, be, there would be areas that you would never need to go to if you weren't hunting for the, uh, the Mars and, and for the, uh, yeah, once again, but the treasures. But even the alternative routes. routes glow gold, don't they? That's the thing. But more to my point, I think why they've done it, and the reason I like it, is that it takes a little bit of that concentration for sure, that you, you, know, you don't necessarily um, need to think where you're going because it's telling you where to go. Um, but back to Gary's point of, I actually think it, it allows you to enjoy the environments and what's going on around you. Um, there's that one scene in particular where you're, you're going up the side of this 
what would be classed as a junkyard skyscraper. And you have mm. to get to the top. It's a race with Pixie. And you're going up there. And it's just, it's more of a time-based thing. But I really enjoyed that because I, you know, it wasn't a case of not knowing where you're going. It's just how fast and how well you can maneuver your character to get to these points. And there's, you know, you can either win that race or you can lose that race. So there is variation of how well you can actually, um, you know, even though you've been told where to go and where you can actually perform the actions of what it's asking you to do. But I mean, particularly, I, I didn't mind it. I enjoyed, um, you know, just traversing the environments. Um, I didn't find it a big issue that was distracting me. I, I would, um, uh, this kind of leads on to another, another point I'd like to make. But I don't want to, again, I don't want to come as sound as being too negative on it because I did still really you enjoy it. You say what you like. You know, I actually quite like the fact that it, it shows you the route. Like I said, I think in a lot of games like Tomb Raider and Uncharted, you need to do that because the player just won't enjoy it otherwise. Uh, and you you invite, um, you put in additional routes and things to find in order to add a bit of challenge to it. But it's hopelessly inconsistent with the uh, issue, which I had several times, actually once when I had to, in fact, more than one occasion, I had to re- reload from a checkpoint, in mm-hmm. that you have invisible walls. And uh, in particular, when you're climbing up things, if you need to get down again, unless you stand at exactly the right pixel where it will allow you to drop down, you can't actually get back down again. And I had a situation happen to me twice where there was a platform which I had to... Um, move uh, some other platforms to line up in one of the game's many, many Switch puzzles. Um, And because I'd gone up on the platform before, I'd moved the swingy platform thing to actually progress, Mm. would not let me come back down. There was actually no physical way to come back down. The camera zoomed right in, and when I went back to the point where I climbed up, it would not let you go back down at that point. That's just a cut-off point, though. That's... No, 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 because it happened on several occasions. It wasn't just that one. There were other occasions as well. There's, there's many times where you're, you climb up onto something, like a, the roof of a, of a car or something on that highway, and the drop down on any side is exactly the same, but it will only let you drop down at the, at the same point at which you climbed up. And there's no visual cue as to where that was, whereas when you're climbing and, and, and on the pipes and on the handholds, there is a visual cue. So I think it was inconsistent in that. And there were many times where I was basically stuck or frustrated trying to find my way back down again. Hmm. Slightly lax design. I was thinking how we got to this, uh, this point I was um, thinking, right, is, is it right or wrong to have uh, golden glowing handholds or runner vision or whatever? And I think um, I like the idea of uh, being able to, maybe they should have put it as an option to turn it off for people who didn't want it. But yeah, the way I see it is, and it's it's an extension of, if you think about the early platform games, whether it be Donkey Kong or Mario or Jet Set Willy or Manic Miner, the platforms were completely picked out against the backdrop because the backdrops were incredibly simple. And, and, and as we've got these larger, more complex environments, it's become more necessary to do something like, yeah, make, paint things yellow or red or gold to to make it obvious. Otherwise, you've got these absurd situations where the player spends far too long not making progress and and doing ridiculously uh unimmersive things jumping up against things that you yeah so i i don't have a problem with it at all it, it, but it does it does serve to uh illustrate the linearity of of the environments i suppose i i guess actually paul could actually speak more closely to this but is it more of a case that you know we're we're so in love with the scenery that's around us that it, you know seeing a red glowy Thing telling you where to go, you know, along with the orbs, it just spoils what is essentially a beautiful looking game. Um, I wouldn't say so. I think, well, oh, yeah, well, actually, yeah, maybe it does. It's the glowing, 
the glowing things that you grab onto, I I think again, I think there's a more elegant solution to that. I think have you noticed in, in the most recent uh, Uncharted three, tend to have color coded things that you can grab onto. Like a lot of it's yellow, like yellow pipes. Mm. You know, you can grab onto. They fit in with the environment, but they also stick out to you. I think they, they maybe could have done something similar in Enslaved. They could have. There's a theme. There's a color theme going on throughout Enslaved, Enslaved which is green versus red. It's kind of mm-hmm. mirrors the kind of yeah. man versus uh, nature versus man type thing. Um, they could have done that. You know, anything that's red should be able to stick out to you as something that could uh, be grabbed onto. I think yeah, yeah. there's a more elegant way. Uncharted also does when you're when you're leveling in Uncharted. If you hold left on the analog stick, his hand will go out as to where he can and can't go. So mm. to uh, to fix Zan's problem, you know, if you hold down, you should be able to direct. Yeah, it does. It's jumpable. It does it. it yeah, extremely it well. Really you can just you can jump to your death in Uncharted yeah. as well, but uh, it does give you a visual cue as to wh- where there are bits where you can go over the Absolutely. edge. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But um, anyway, does that take away from it? World? I think it. I think it could do. Yeah. I think there's a better way of doing it. You you kind of notice it. It sticks out at you for perhaps the first five or ten minutes of gameplay, and then your brain starts processing it out. <laughs> I, I, I mean, don't agree with that at to, all. I think I think uh, something for, shiny. For me, I mean, I'm talking personally here. Mm-hmm. You know? I think human beings are part magpies. You know, if something shines, they're going to look at it. And I think when you when you look at the when you look at the backgrounds in the slave in the slave when there are parts shining. The background's stunning, you know, the, the foliage and the trees are absolutely glorious and mm. your eye is, I know you said just per- personally you didn't do that, but 99% of people will do that because that's what it's there for, you know, you will Inferior be attracted beings. to something that is, that is shining. Yeah. <laughs> so between between what we're saying is between Golden Monkey Sight and uh, the orbs, they've done themselves a disservice Quite as possibly, regards yeah. to the quality so. of the you're, art. You're saying yeah. they could have switched off, you know, maybe maybe the way Dead Space did it, where you click the analog stick and it shows you a possible route. Something like yeah. that would, would be an option. It gives the, the player the option. But one thing I will say about the, the, the platforming is, okay, the, the, the bits you jump onto are shiny and quite distracting, but the platform, the level, and the jumping itself is very cathartic, and the, mm-hmm. the animations are absolutely fantastic. Well, yeah, it's you, a, it's very you do feel monkey yes. yeah, yeah. They they sell you sell you the idea that you're simian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know that's the thing. I mean, like every time that you jump across a gap and monkey has to pull himself up, you can see his muscles bunch and see the effort that it actually takes him to pull himself up mm-hmm. onto yeah. the ledge. And there's a lot of cool cinematic little cuts as well. Like if you just manage to catch up like platform by the tips of your fingers, the the camera will swoop down underneath, giving you. a Nice little view of exactly where you could have went if you had missed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also it makes so much more sense, uh, perhaps, than it does with, say, Nathan Drake, in that this guy's actually doing this stuff. You know, you look at his physique mm-hmm. and it, there's a logic to it, whereas, you know, Nathan Drake's obviously, you know, he keeps himself fit because <laughs> he's, he's, he's a bit forever. dumpy, though, and, you know, he makes the most impossible leaps. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah, but also narratively as well, because if if you compare this to um, the Uncharted series, I mean Nathan Drake's flying around the world all, all over the place. Mm. It's you know you just placed into a scene and then you know you get to the next continent. It's, it's very well done. It's very enjoyable. What I did like about Enslaved is that it felt that you never really left that world that you were dropped mm. into. Um, mm. A lot of the, a lot of the platforming sections were there to get you actually from A to B. 
Um, yeah, and, and it yeah. makes more sense that that world is climbable because it's kind of yes. broken down. It's yeah. a broken down society. You know, as um, Paul was saying, you you got the red beams quite often. And that's the, the the belt that's showing your way. But it makes contextual sense because you know still is one of the, the only things left amongst this broken well one society, and mm. two the you know, this decaying world. And one thing we we haven't really talked about is how gorgeous uncharted uh, enslaved is uncharted is as well, but enslaved really is. And how it's got such a rich colour palette. How mm. unusual that is for, for now and how it, unusual it has been in the past. Especially but, in the post-apocalyptic genre. Yes. You know? and there's, yeah. there's actually a great yeah. story about this. Um, I remember, I think it was Giant Bomb in particular, were talking about um, how Fallout 3 originally started out um, when they were doing their research. Bethesda were, were looking into, you know, how do we, um, how, how, how would a post-apocalyptic world be in, you know, whatever, 50, 100, 200 years time? And they realised actually what that world would be would be enslaved, and that didn't mm. match the the artistic look they were going for their game. <clears throat> so they completely uh, went back to the drawing board and said, "Well, no, this is what we feel the apocalyptic world would be, rather than actually the reality, which would be uh, you know overgrown vegetation taken back over societies." Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, and and yet it still managed, although it is beautiful, um, it manages to have a sort of bleakness. Um, Maybe that, you know, maybe that is partly the occupation of the mechs. Um, but it's still, it's not quite sort of eco levels of desolate loneliness, but it has, it has a feeling to it that, you know, just the lack of, the lack of, uh, yeah, human life, I suppose. And the fact yeah, but that that's, that's still there. If, for instance, the first level, um, you know, once you're off the ship and it's crashed down, you land in what essentially is New York, isn't it? Um, it, you come there and you can see where the society, uh, you know, have been at the last point of desperation. Um, and there's signs for people to, you know, uh, have you seen this missing person up on the, up yeah, on the billboards I think it's and fa- stuff. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah. It's really subtly done as well. I mean, it's not like trying to force on your face that there's been this war that's wiped everyone out. But you can see all the all the clues, all the, the tapestry leading up to mm-hmm. where we are now, scattered just everywhere in the environment. Yeah, that's one thing Ninja Theory, I think, are a, in, enslaved are an absolute master of is visual storytelling, you know, the concept of showing and not telling. You're, all the visual cues are there. Now, if, if you look at, like, Monkey, if you look at his body, he's got branding on him, you know, the way that, that tribes uh, do, and normal folk do as well, you know. Um, but you can, and you can then fill in the blanks and you can assume, oh, well, he must have been part of a tribe who would have those those kind of patterns and the branding on his skin and his red, uh, the red thing across his face, the red face paint and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, and all throughout the world, like, yeah, the, the missing point where all the posters are up, um, it's done, it is done incredibly well. I mean, you can see, like, there's office chairs and desks and all that out in the open, so you can then start to piece together, you know, how far, how far on are we from the events that caused this, whatever happened, you know, you can, you're afforded a certain amount of intelligence, I think, to engage with the game and you can then contemplate and maybe remonstrate with your friends or whatever as to what could have happened, what did happen, what was likely to happen, you know, and you're given enough visual cues in order to do that, but you're not, as uh, as Dan said, you're not hit over the head with it. I think that's incredible. It's it's interesting because at this point we haven't actually spoiled this game um, for anybody who wants to play for the story, and I, and I don't know whether we want to or not because... Yeah. In some way, I will. We will be doing it, game. but I would recommend that anyone listening to this that's been intrigued by this conversation, the game is ten pounds online at this point. So stop the podcast, get online, 
buy it and, and come back. Listen, listen to the final chapter later. Yeah, I was going to say that now is the time um, because we don't need to explain the plot of the whole game because you can. No. Read Journey to the West. It's a road movie. Um, oh, the only well, bit. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I would love you to explain the story of the game. Uh, well, we're going to explain. We're just. I was well, saying. We don't need to explain up to the point. <laughs> we don't need to explain what happens apart from the end because yeah. basically it's an A to B road movie. You know that they're go- trying to go from one place to another. That's that's all that well, you need to know. I, I think one, but one the end you... is the bit that um, but, where it goes yeah. all matrix, basically. Okay, I would I would argue that they don't do that because if you uh, one of the the the, the, the quite large disappointments for me in this game, and it did again mm. didn't ruin the game for me, but um, being someone who you know how, how much I loved the the Monkey TV series is is just how underused and in fact considering the writing talent that was on this game, Alex Alex Garland, Garland, yeah. what, what an abysmal mess they make of using. The, the background material because it bears no relation to the original material other than the three characters and, the, mm. and their names and even in the way those characters behave bears no relationship to the original yeah, source it's material. definitely interesting and that from an expectation point of view because although I watched Monkey when I was really young I can't really remember much about it so the story came along is at least relatively fresh to me yeah, it's it's nothing like it at all. I mean, mm. uh, d- to start off with, when they first in the game when they first escape the, the the slave ship and 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 Monkey is enslaved by Trip. That's not you know in the in the original source material. That's not what happens at all. Monkey is already enslaved by the gods for being a naughty god, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the story of the original is that they are on a pilgrimage to see Buddha to obtain some magical tablets or something. I don't know, but the it's inconsequential because, as you said, it's so the adventures they have on the way, basically. But in this game, the initial purpose is for you, is, is for you to get her home, which mm. is a completely different thing. And then from yeah. that point onwards, it then becomes a revenge plot, which is completely the opposite of what <clears throat> the original source material is. It bears absolutely no relationship to it at all. And and the character of Tripitaka is a complete, um, you know, completely unlikable and uh, a completely alien version of what has come before. Well, so I you're think saying you that Trap is unlikable. Yeah, I, I, I feel so. really sorry for you. I, I, that I, man, I, this I is a note of contention. She was, and I would like to let you finish, really but I've got to step in here. I, I, okay, yeah, no, well, let me explain why. Because she's incredibly cruel. And yet, by the end of the game, you're supposed to th- you're supposed to feel that there's this relationship that has built up that is totally unwarranted. Well, there's no, why is she cruel? Explain she, why she's cruel she to me. She captures and enslaves a man to escort her to her homeland. She would have been killed for sure. She is not suited for that kind of environment. But, but that gives her the right to, to steal no, it, another right. human's life. So it doesn't give her the right it, at all. She doesn't so have to, 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 to take a slave to protect her. And then when she gets there, she then then kind of forces him to take her further so that she can enact her revenge. But great storytelling, Gary. Does is, she have is, to... She didn't. Right, right, he, he, he put the, the headband thing on himself, which I thought was a bit bizarre. Um, and I, I know no, you mean that's right. She, that's right at the very she end. Is, she is right quite unlikable end. in that. You know, in the beginning, and the way she talks to you, she orders you about. You know, she says, "Come here, stop." You know, and, and she is very curt. And I did find her actually quite unlikable in her, but I really liked Monkey, and I did get to warm to the the character interaction and stuff like but that, that. But I don't, but I don't think she was done uh, very well. Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's really on. unlikable, but I, I so don't think it's very well. Now, let me, this, this is the reason, actually, one of the things I fell in love with the game. It's how slowly they pace that stuff out. So, yes, I didn't particularly like Trip at the start because you're like, well, why would you do this to Monkey? That's unfair. 
but it's that relationship they build throughout their journey all the way through where you know at the, you know he's just there because he needs to protect her because he doesn't want to die and she's got her own reasons you're like well, just get back to your village like we care but then over that point where he starts to fall in love with her because he sees you know the, the good that's inside her and the fact that she just wants to get back to her family they're forced together on the on, in the unrightness of uh, situations and it's a slow burn and that's what i appreciate about, mm. appreciate about this game is how slowly they feed that story how you actually see the relationship balanced together to the point and this is where we have to talk about where she gets to the camp and her family has been decimated wiped out there's just child body remains and that's the emphasis of why she becomes really quite annoyed at that point and she wants to have revenge because her family's been killed a on top of, of that she knew killed. that that was going to be happening and you know like if if you had the choice of your family being wiped out or taking this guy that, I mean, sure, it's not morally right to enslave someone, but if your family was going to be wiped out if you didn't for, say, three days, would you let your family just be wiped off the face of the earth? Or would you take a step that a lot of people just would not agree with? Again, yeah, I guess she must have panicked. You know, these are extenuating circumstances. Where, where <laughs> she where she isn't the exactly the manners. bravest person in the world either, you know? Yeah, She's scared. She, she was terrified, obviously, and she, when she did that, she reacted out of panic. I mean, you can see it right at the beginning. Her eyes are, are completely wide open, you know? She's absolutely terrified, mm. like, a, like a rabbit in the headlights type of thing. But yeah, these are extenuating circumstances, but you to, know? To be fair, Monkey jumps on her pod. He didn't have to. He yeah, also yeah. looks like a rapist, you know? <laughs> I wouldn't have let him inside either. <laughs> yeah, you would. I think... To, to to go, I mean, the, the, I have a real problem with the the, the whole kind of uh, relationship, you know, uh, and 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 uh, subtext of the game because it just it doesn't it it doesn't earn it. By the end of the game, it just hasn't oh, earned God. it. Disagree. <laughs> Completely disagree. It, it hasn't. Objection. It hasn't it. Where, uh, there is no. <laughs> okay, so in the first half of the game, she's she's quite a strong character, and she, uh, as you said, she's ordering him around. Um, there is no sense only, only of... Only because she has the power to do no, no, so. Let, let me finish, let me finish. There's no sense of kindness at all, she shows, other than rescuing some fish. Okay, so there's no... The, the, the relationship is built upon the concept that Monkey sees... Monkey is intoxicated by her vulnerability. Okay, that's what it is. It's not any sense of uh, her being this kind, caring person, because she's blatantly not and then they reach the point where she yes you know this emotional point where she discovers that her family have been killed and i would draw comparisons to your discussion on gears of war 2 on this because i i think depending on how you approach it you can take it in one of two ways um and i actually think that the gears of war 2 has the same similar sort of attempt at getting this payoff and and probably falls flat for for similar reasons for the latter half of the game she becomes this kind of ultra vulnerable weak and pathetic and at times sex object particularly when pixie comes into it yeah but it. that's because the stakes become 10 times as high <sighs> I just it doesn't earn that right it, it jumps Not at all. I mean, it, the, it the, makes the a huge relationship hand, has hand been goes. evolving this entire time yeah let but, darren but have his it, she doesn't because, need to order him around so much because she's becoming a lion of strength and he's starting to take a liking to her as well you can see it and it's not shoved in your throat it's all the little subtle even body language, you know, there's a lot of scenes where just the slightest. Is it not uh, Stockholm syndrome? Mm-hmm. Isn't he's simply becoming infatuated with his captor? I, I wouldn't I think, think so. Actually, no. through the motion capture and you know, there there is great facial performances that actually make me believe that they are falling for each other, and it's not just you know they are two very unlikely you know couples, but through this you know, like I say, circumstance, they just you know they they tend to. I don't know. <laughs> 
to me, to me, it sells itself. I don't, I don't think it doesn't deserve um, pushing towards that second part of the game. I think you could have arguments that I think the second part of the game slightly loses it as they have to suddenly do this great big journey across, um, you know, huge vast amounts of environment and get into ships and fly across continents. It maybe starts to lose its way then, but I think it does earn the right to, you know, have this, I guess, revenge plot at the end. But it, it doesn't really do that, though, because, I mean, you know, it's only two or three days ago when I was playing it. It really doesn't do that in those last few chapters. I mean, she's she becomes a real bit part player. You hardly see her at all. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's there, there's this sudden strong relationship. From the point at which you find Pigsy onwards, Trip becomes a very... Uh, uh, she, she is pushed to one side almost completely, other than one or two fleeting uh, clips in the cutscenes. Um, and then, right at the very end, you're, you're you're suddenly supposed to assume that they've they've formed this really strong bond with each other. You know, the bit where he takes his headband well, off. Well, having having played the game three times, I I do assume because yeah, it's one of the be- one of the better stories that I've actually got involved with. Yeah, um, I've played it plenty of times as well. I think, and uh, I can't agree with Gary. Here. I think Gary's just. But I think we're all just seeing it from a different angle. You know, Gary didn't buy it, and we've all bought it. You know, mm. obviously Gary wasn't given enough for. To believe that I'm not sorry from putting words in your mouth, but um, I wonder how much pre-context that has with actually you know knowing the story as it could be rather than mm. what it is. Not really, because it bears no relationship to mm-hmm. it. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm playing it from the point of view of just of just absorbing what's happening in front of me, and it I'm not the only one who who feels this. I've oh, read no, a, no. Uh, yeah. a couple of uh, reviews in the last week doing a bit of research, which basically said a very similar thing, although in a different kind of way. And I think particularly the last uh, you're going to probably get towards this anyway but the last couple of acts of this game feel like they are they are uh there feels like there's something missing there's like a whole chunk of the story's been cut out or something's been removed because mm. there's this huge leap mm. to uh and then all of a sudden we're, we're kind of doing the pyramid um, yeah the pyramid yeah, well, what, what, the, yeah. There's that, this weird sort of end sequence which, with, with it, no it, real explanation. It and is odd. I mean, it makes more sense if you've been collecting the masks, mm-hmm. of course, back to yeah. the collectibles, um, mm-hmm. which reveal little flashes of uh, this this man, this pyramid man, Andy Serkis, uh, his previous pre-war existence. Um, but, yeah, effectively, um, after they finally take down the biggest of the mechs, the scorpion, uh, well, Pigsy sacrifices himself to do this. Um, actually, there's a group of them, isn't there? It's like in the mm-hmm. end they kill me. The final boss, which is not not a terrible fight, it's uh, it's not stunning either. Um, he, I thought monkey, it was very good. Monkey takes one down, and then suddenly there are five more mm-hmm. or something like that. And uh, Pigsy has to sacrifice himself, and uh, the achievement pops up of smoky <laughs> bacon. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, which uh, kind of unintentional comedy. Yeah, um, but the, yes. So then they go inside this pyramid, and it turns out that uh, effectively uh, the man is uh, keeping the people um, not enslaved in his head, but he is giving them a better life than the one the real life. It's very, very, very much uh, their existence is very much like the that in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. In the, although in that they're being used as batteries for fuel, in this uh, they are they are they believe they're existing. It's a bit in, like the Truman Show. What we Kinda. consider a contemporary world. Yeah, it's like a virtual Truman show. Um, only it's not for entertainment, it's for their betterment. Mm-hmm. And uh, Monkey tries on, tries the mask on for size and see if he likes it. And I actually find that bit quite touching where he sees, you know, what what we consider to be our contemporary world 
Um, although you don't see it explicitly, you hear the sounds and, and there's lights and colours reflected in it's his laughing, eyes. And yeah. You know that he's pretty much, you know, playing in a park or on a beach with some kids and, you know, just doing normal day-to-day stuff that for most of us, you know, certainly most people who will be playing a video game um, in our in our privileged existences, that's what our, our experience is more often than not. Um, I actually found that quite touching. But then just as he's thinking, yeah, maybe this is not so bad after all. Uh, Tripitaka pulls the wire and uh, makes the um, proactive decision that uh, she will take that existence away from these thousands of of uh, slaves and and monkey. Um, and then she asks if she did the right thing, which is a um, great line. I, and I know that yeah. some people really don't like the ending; they find it mm. completely um, at odds with the actual rest of what's happened for the rest of the game. And, and that's fair enough. I think it's one of the more interesting endings out there. I think the bigger problem is whether we'll ever get to see a sequel and, and what would hell would happen after this point. <laughs> but the moment that she says, did I do the right thing? That sends shivers down my spine. I love it. I mean, it's a great line. The thing is, I mean, this ending, it's one of the rare games that it nails ending the current story, but it leaves a world of possibility for the future. I've, I've, <laughs> I've recently said that you know, if, if I was given the choice between an Uncharted 3 and an Enslaved 2, then I would take an Enslaved 2. Now, that's, that's not to say that I don't want to play Uncharted 3, and that's not to say that I didn't even want an Uncharted 3 to exist, because clearly it's an amazing game and you know, everybody should play it. What I was more getting at was that Uncharted 2 um, is possibly one of the, you know, the high point, even you know, beyond Uncharted 3, some might argue. Um, but that's if you, if you go back to Uncharted 1, there were so many little niggles that we, if we were to do a show now, we'd probably actually bring up a number of those same issues. Um, but Uncharted 2 was given the chance to fix all those issues and come back and be strong and be one of the greatest games of all time. I just can't help but feeling if Ninja Theory had the second opportunity to, to kind of go back to that canvas and work on an Enslaved 2, that they could possibly, with the talent of, you know, of what's at that studio, produce one of the greatest games of all time. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I know, you know we've had different opinions on the story or whatever, but I think it, it leaves that final point of where could they go? They could go... A million different directions. Certainly, with the you know the fact that all these people find and they lived in uh, you know what isn't reality, and suddenly they're, they're formed into here, and there could be an uprising against the, the mechs which are clearly left in this world. Um, and I, don't, I just I'm desperate to see a, a sequel to this, and we would appear not to be getting one because it, you know although it sold reasonably, it didn't meet expectations once again for a, an interview game. And I think that was mainly down to marketing. As I said, it was a complete surprise well, to me. I'd hardly heard of it before. True, but you've got to remember, yeah, Uncharted, no Uncharted got a sequel because it's an exclusive and Sony supported it. And I can't help but think that Sony as a company would have, I think hmm, Ninja Theory would have been better being supported as a, a first-party developer and having released Enslaved as an exclusive. I think they would have been given the support. This is all conjecture, obviously. But mm. they would have they, they may have stood a better chance of having a bigger company behind them like Sony supporting them and pushing them forward, you know, on the PS blog or whatever. But, but once again we see it would have we done see better. This, <clears throat> we see this ridiculous risk of new IP, whether it succeeds or fails. And you know, there's I think there's so much more that this game could offer if okay. given a second chance. And, and once again, you know, new IP struggles. But when you look at it, it's I mean it's enslaved. There's a picture of a guy that looks a bit like a monkey on the front holding a staff. I mean it's it's a hard it's, sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's so much good content in there. I don't know how you present that on the front of a box and get people excited yeah. about it because the reviews were, you know, I, I looked at that. I think it's, it's still an, you know, eighty something on Metacritic, which you know, it's 
<laughs> pretty good. So and and you know, word of mouth, I think when I was playing, it was was there, but for whatever reason, it just didn't stick with people. Um, although yeah, we brought thirteen copies between us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and obviously you know four of the five of us uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Gary has the greatest reservations. I think Gary enjoyed it, didn't you? Well, I, yeah, I still think it's better than ninety five percent of the games released that year or any year in fact mm-hmm. um i just think uh, as you know, as we discussed i think it just has like m- significant flaws in it which um I, I, like i said it's it's more of a big di- it was more of a disappointment for me rather than anything else but i did i did enjoy playing it you know i i did i you know i, I found large parts of it to be very rewarding it's just uh probably the key parts of it which are the beauty in the story i just you know, they, they ended up being lost because of various problems with it. So, Darren, I asked you right at the start what made you evangelise this game um, to close off the uh, Ninja Theory show. Uh, can you answer that question in a brief and pithy style? Basically, this game was a breath of fresh air for me. It came out of nowhere, and it, in the most part, it absolutely blew me away in so many aspects, artistically, cinematically. The gameplay was great. The platform was fine. But the most important thing for me was that I came away from this game feeling like I had been on a journey with these people, that the experience was more than worthwhile, and just that the world was a better place for me having played the game. And the reason I bought so many copies and handed them out was because I wanted other people to experience the same joy that it gave me. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. And so am I. Yes. Recommendations don't come much higher than that, and uh, yeah, I'm still extremely grateful for the for the gift of a copy. It did indeed make me make me feel happy inside. And I know we've had different opinions, but it's it did actually find itself into one of my favourite games of all time. I, I recently drew up oh. a top ten list, uh, and it sits actually quite proud uh, in amongst that. So um, yeah, I, it's a really really big important game for me. In fact, I had a really big headache before we did this tonight, and uh, I wasn't going to miss this show because I would have regretted it ever since. Mm. Well said, everybody. Right. To conclude, uh, we do still want your voices on the show, if you'd care to provide them uh, via Skype or an MP3. Uh, forthcoming next week, we have uh, a split show. One half will be about Shadows of the Damned, while the other half will or should, hopefully all being well, uh, comprise of an interview with developers known as No uh, Australian Development Team who you may or may not be familiar with. Um, Also forthcoming, we haven't arranged the next group of game-related shows yet, so uh, watch this space. But we will have a show in December at some point um, with uh, the infamous internet presence who is Adam Capone. So if you have questions for him, then please uh, provide them via Skype or MP3. You can follow us on Twitter, at Kane and Rince. (laughs) Email us at kaneandrince at gmail.com. Uh, we are part of the Character Select Network. Come and join in the discussion at the characterselect.net slash forum. Forum. It's uh, it's increasingly frothy and busy and bubbling. And uh, yeah, it's getting, getting proper good there now. And finally, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And your reviews and ratings are always welcome. Even the bad ones. Sort of. So, as ever, it just remains for me, Leon Cox, to thank my co-host Tony Atkins and Gary Blower and Paul Rooney and regular contributor Darren Foreman. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>